On September 6, 1901, a young anarchist assassinated the President of the United States at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. But, unlike the assassinations of Lincoln and Garfield, this killing came well after this president had established his policies and changed the United States from an isolated backwater hit country to a powerful economic empire. In this week's HPH, we're telling you about the birth of all things America does best. And by that, I mean imperialism, greed, war, and of course, gun violence. So, grab a drink, settle in, and enjoy this episode of 100 Proof History, titled The McKinley Administration. Birth of an Empire, Death of a President. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Yeah, baby, they hear the blues are calling to sell it and grandma's penny. <laughs> oh, hey, Chris. <laughs> Hello. How are you doing? Oh, we're bringing back the panty thing, huh? We're doing that again this week. No, I was just thinking about last week's episode. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay. We're not cool, doing cool. No, no, no more panties. <laughs> We've evolved past that, yeah. Yeah, come on. What yeah, are we? You know. Juvenile. That's true. Immature. Grown up. This is an adult ass history podcast. That's right. And this week, we're talking about a certain President William McKinley. And. Something that happens to him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he achieves all his dreams. The end. We'll see you next week. I'm sorry. We'll see you in two weeks. We're doing that now. I forgot about that. You asked me how I'm doing. Greg, I'm doing fucking fantastic. And I need you to start paying me a little bit more respect on the show. Because I don't know if you heard, but the guy who voiced Charlie Brown killed himself today. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's an opening now. For a voice actor who sounds like a whiny bitch and us is also incredibly depressed. I don't know. Seems like my stock is rising. Seems uh, like I'm fucking killing it. Don't you go getting uppity on me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lucy, you took away the football. See, I killed it. Nailed it. You're contractually obligated. Oh, God, I forgot per about that. Wolf Dick, our producer. <sighs> oh, so. I forgot about that shit. Sorry. Hey, man, here's some positive words of encouragement, mm -hmm. something to bring you up. Just just think of this as resume building, okay? Okay. Oh, okay. That's fair. Yeah. For the next 200 episodes. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, so, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like life just took the football away from me, and here I am. <laughs> and really, besides that, we here at the 100 Proof History Headquarters we think you should identify more with a pig pen than Charlie <laughs> Brown. So just think, you have nothing, you're homeless and unkempt, <laughs> and just, I want you to think of that as your station in life, okay? Fair enough. Well, that sounds like some big business capitalism talk, and we're going to get into that a lot today, because the story of McKinley... The story about the uh, growth of American business and the struggle of the worker. A little bit. So, uh, for that, Greg, I would like to introduce you 
to our main source, which, of course, you already know, but I'd like to introduce the listener to our main source, which was The President and the Assassin by Scott Miller. Ah, yes, another book. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know what? Uh, I've started doing a thing on the Instagram for source reviews, but I'll give you a very clean, neat rundown here. It's an interesting book. He does this thing that a lot of historians do. They fall in love with their subject, like Ron Chernow writes really big, long books, but he loves everyone he writes about. It's always the presidential narrators, right? The presidential biographers, isn't it? Yeah, and Scott Miller is, is guilty of that, man. He he loves McKinley, and he like will go to bat for him and make excuses why McKinley does things. And you're like, well, I mean, maybe he was just kind of an asshole sometimes. Isn't that, that's a possibility. But, uh, you know, if you guys uh, don't believe us, stick around for the story and maybe make up your own mind. Fuck the man. That's how you do it. They're like, oh, shit, I wasn't going to listen. But now, now, I want to hear the story. Well, you can't just hook them. I don't know if you know anything about fishing. When they first bite mm-hmm. on the bait, you know, they bite on the hook. You're going to pull it up real quick. That way it really Uh, goes through their cheek, you know? Oh, okay. And that's how you actually get them so they can't get off the line. Okay, I got you. The way we're going to do that is... Was McKinley gay? Maybe. Find out in this episode. There you go. There we go. Yes. Salacious. All right. That 19th century gay. Yeah. Not as out in the open. That's true, yeah. We don't know. We don't know. We'll we'll dive into that, maybe, this episode. You just have to stick around. See? Yeah, we don't know. Or do we? Oh, yeah. There we go. God. Chris is about to to reveal, starting right now. Yes. William Mount McKinley was born on January 29th, 1843, in the quaint town of Niles, Ohio. You guys might not recognize the town, but it's a lesser-known suburb of the much more famous Frasier, Ohio. That's why you were singing that song. You just knew it was coming. He was the seventh out of nine McKinley children, and by all accounts, he made up for a seeming lack of brilliance by trying hard and wanting it more. What's your excuse? Uh, I, I have none. I'm just Lack drift. of brilliance. <laughs> you don't try. You don't fucking work hard. Nope. Just waiting for that universal basic income to come my way any day now. (laughs) The family then moved to Poland, Ohio, for the better schools, and little Willie, who was a devout Methodist, enrolled in Poland Seminary because his mom hoped he would become a minister. Well, instead of joining the church, McKinley bailed and went to Allegheny College in Pennsylvania. He was only there a year before a vague nervous ailment, quote-unquote, caused him to become deeply depressed and anxious, and he dropped out of college. Kind of like when your parents sent you to a conversion camp? (laughs) I don't know why it's making me super depressed. Like, my tummy wummy hurts. I need to come home. (laughs) Chris, you're 23 years old. You don't have a tummy wummy anymore. What's wrong? (laughs) Nothing! Just deeply depressed and questioning everything about my identity. I don't see what the problem is, Mom and Dad. This is worse than fat camp. (laughs) At least computer camp, I got to have sex with a bunch of dudes. 
<laughs> well, McKinley returned to Poland where he earned his living as a postal worker and as a school teacher because back in those days, you didn't have to go into crippling debt to get a four-year degree and a teaching certificate only to be severely underpaid and mistreated for a living. Shout out to all of our teacher listeners. Shout out to my wife. She's not listening. She doesn't care. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah you did say listeners. <laughs> she's, she's busy panhandling for marker money on the side of the road. <laughs> oh, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> In 1861, McKinley was all set to go back to college, but a bunch of racist assholes in the South decided their state's rights to own humans was worth starting a war over. Out of a love for Lincoln and some peer pressure from his buddies, McKinley joined up with the Ohio Volunteer Infantry. And that recruiter promised him, like, hey, man, you get, like, we'll teach you a job skill and then we'll pay for your college once you get out. That'd be great. You know, it'd be, see the world, make some friends. Probably be the best time of your life. Just laughed his ass off as the kids signed the papers. Marks one off the quota. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Got a fat one, fellas. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Unlike the other future presidents, Grant and Garfield, McKinley wasn't exactly a frontline soldier who shot through the ranks to become a leader of men. After a few months, he was promoted to sergeant and was placed in charge of the commissary. His greatest moment in the war came at the Battle of Antietam, where he raced his loaded wagon through enemy fire to deliver food to the soldiers who had missed breakfast that morning. What a fucking hero. <laughs> I know. I don't know why, but in my head, I just pictured Jack from Jack in the Box racing across in a, a wagon, like whipping up there, bring some sourdough breakfast sandwiches to all the troops as bullets are just flying around him. I don't know why either. Maybe it's because, you know, as you know, I'm a uh, janitorial expert for Jack in the Box headquarters. And so, you know, maybe in the back of my mind. <clears throat> Master of the custodial arts. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it is weird, though. A lot of people don't know this, but Jack, that's not his real voice. And, like, those features on him, those are just, like, vinyl decals. What? Yeah, he's actually just, like, this white orb that hovers around and says, Humans must consume meat and grow weak and fat. And we have to edit over that. We have to put in... The happy voice telling them to go to, you know, like a hamburger or something. Because, you know, they don't think America's ready for that kind of marketing strategy. It's pretty weird, right? I, I don't believe that for a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> and now I'm hungry for Jack in the Box, so. Yes. This pleases the Jack. <laughs> well, his daring breakfast run impressed one Rutherford B. Hayes so much that he gave McKinley a commission making him a lieutenant, and put McKinley on his staff. All the way down to the balls. <laughs> Am I right? Oh, the low-hanging fruit. It's just sitting right there. Greg, one of, we just stared at each other for a second. Listener, you can't see the video, but we just stared at each other. It's like, who's going to pick that fruit? Who's Is that low-hanging fruit? Take a bite out of that the apple. Balls? Yeah. <laughs> what are they, little, little raisins, little plums? <laughs> their dates which i just learned this week requires dying wasps to make you know that i didn't know that i've never been on one i have no <laughs> idea what it is 
My marriage was one of convenience. Yeah. It was arranged. Your parents owe her family so much money. Well, following the war, McKinley moved back to Poland, where he went to work for a lawyer. He loved the law so much that he booked it over to Albany and got his own law degree, and then moved back to Poland, where he was elected as the district attorney. And just to reiterate, this is Poland, Ohio. Yeah. (laughs) Ohio. Poland, Ohio. Because the country of Poland will come up later. So... Just take note of that. Separate the two in your head. Think of it as Poland, if you have to. It's hard because they're both desolate wastelands where nothing good ever is born, but whatever. Okay, Hitler. (laughs) It was around this same time that William McKinley met a buxom beauty named Ida Saxton. More like... I do sex a ton, <laughs> right? That's what we called her in high school. And then I asked her out and she said no. And I was like, you fucking whore. You bitch. Why don't you like me? I'm a nice guy. You would go with fucking Chad McKinley over there? Jesus. Awful joke followed up by a sad <laughs> truth. Continue. The two fell in love and were wed in 1871. Their daughter, Catherine, was born that Christmas. But in 1873, Ida's mother died. Then she gave birth to another daughter who died just five months later. And then... And then, two-year-old Catherine contracted typhoid fever, and she, too, passed away. She's not having the best 1873. You know, all those hopes after New Year's were just like, ooh, I thought this was going to be my year. Ooh, this has been a rough one. Yeah, it was like the uh, 19th century's version of 2020, you know? I don't know, 2020 was pretty great for me, you know? I got to stay inside, avoid a bunch of people. Yeah, but then a bunch of celebrities decided like, oh, well, I got nothing to do. I'm going to enter the podcast space. Ah, that's true. It did kill us a little bit. fuck the little man. (laughs) Well, I'm not so little, I'll have you know. But, I mean, you know, I'm kind of little, but... Fuck you! Fuck you all the same! Stupid goddamn Jim from The Office, fuck yourself! (laughs) Fucking John Hamm's doing a history podcast, you know things are bleak for us. That motherfucker. Sexy voice, sexy face. No, I'm not serious, he didn't do one. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Thank God. Because I would quit, just to go listen to that. And, yeah, masturbate furiously the whole time. That guy's just pure sex. Man. Isn't he, though? (laughs) Isn't he, though? And he's my idol, just drinking whiskey in the middle of the day and Mad Men. I don't care if that's a character. (laughs) I know that's John Hamm. (laughs) He's just drunk the whole time. But can still get it up. Yeah. You know? That's amazing. My idol. My idol. (laughs) Satisfy a woman. While being an alcoholic. Just satisfy a woman. Just stop there. Like, holy shit, look at this guy. Or being an alcoholic. Stop there. I admire both. I aspire to be both, and I'm only one. (laughs) Well, these deaths were too much for Ida to handle, and she just went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. She began to have fits where she would froth the mouth, lose her memory, act like an infant, and she would pee and poo 
just about anywhere. When these episodes occurred at a party, William would handle it by placing his pocket handkerchief over her face and ignoring her. <laughs> Classic. It's it's not that funny. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, my wife does this. <laughs> but instead of like a dinner party and a handkerchief, it's like when she catches me watching her and her boyfriend and it's a wet bed sheet. Oh, no. So, she yeah. waterboards you. No, it's the bed sheet that's on the bed at the time. Oh, she no. just throws it over me <laughs> oh, gross. when she realizes I'm in the corner. Yeah. And you're watching. all caged up. And you're like, oh, this hurts even more than you know because it's it's pressing up against me. That kind of thing. That's disgusting. Don't do that. <laughs> what what episode was that where you talked about being caged? Like a wooden cage and you're right before the queen or something? I don't even know what has happened on this podcast. <laughs> Cleopatra, maybe? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> like they executed you because you were in a chastity cage? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. And this is the worst damn podcast on the internet. I've said it before. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, despite all of the wackiness involved in the situation, Ida and William would stay married and would be by each other's sides for the rest of his life. What's that mean, Chris? Ominous phrasing. What's that mean? I don't know. You have to keep listening and find out. I don't want to. <laughs> Hook the fish. Hook the fish, Greg. Oh, I tried to with the cuck joke. It worked. <laughs> I'm not even hooked. I don't want to keep listening. <laughs> I've checked out of this thing completely. <laughs> All I'm thinking about is that glorious sheet being thrown on my face. Mm. Just the scent. <laughs> anyway. While things kind of spiraled out of control in his personal life, McKinley's professional life was going pretty great. In 1876, when his friend and mentor, Rutherford Hayes, was elected as president, McKinley tagged along to Washington as the newest congressman from Ohio. It was at this time that American inventing and manufacturing was just, it was thriving, man. Doing great. Best it's ever been. McKinley saw an opportunity to keep that going by passing tariffs on all imported goods. In an 1878 speech to Congress, he would say, quote, we ought to take care of our own nation and her industries first. We ought to produce for ourselves as far as practicable and then send as much abroad as possible. The more, the better. <sighs> he, was an, he was a heavy fellow. I mean, not like William Taft heavy, but he, he was not, uh, he wasn't spelt by any stretch of the imagination. End quote. Thank you. <laughs> he likes how, that's how he ended his speech. <laughs> I was like, is he talking about himself right now? It's very... Why did he sound like shit right beforehand? <laughs> yeah. He sounded really fat, and then he sounded like a guy who could have replaced Charlie Brown's suicidal actor. Just right there. <laughs> now, these tariffs were fantastic for the big wigs and fat cats that were in the businesses, but for the growing population of American workers, they kind of sucked ass. Over 40% of Americans were living below the poverty line. Eight-year-olds died so often in Appalachian coal mines that it became unworthy of reporting in the newspaper obituary sections. And 
if the workers dared to strike and protest their wages and working conditions. The factory owners would hire immigrants and scab workers, which led to violent clashes between striking laborers, scabs, and the police in several major cities. Honestly, Mm -hmm. the perfect crime. Killing an eight-year-old in a coal mine? Why did you immediately know what I was talking about? Hmm? Hmm? I'm just saying, there could have been a serial killer out there, and there's so many eight-year-olds dying, specifically eight-year-old. That's yeah. weird. Maybe some childhood trauma in the serial killer's life happened at that age. Mm-hmm. But there's so many happening, specifically on their eighth birthday, as you just said, <laughs> it's not that... You know, yeah. I'm just saying, somebody got away with a lot of shit yeah. in the Appalachians back then. They're still getting away with a lot of shit in Appalachians. Nobody cares about that backwater bullshit that happens up there. Sorry to all our hillbilly out of cell phone reception <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, from this urban violence came several political labor groups, including the anarchists who believed that there should be no ruling authority and no materialism. There were four basic tenets of anarchy, each more naive than the last. Here we go. Are you ready? First, man's actions are shaped by experiences and education. Okay, makes sense with you. Reasonable. Yeah. Reasonable. Second, man will always act according to reason. Third, fill a man with the proper experiences and education, and man will always act in a reasonable way. Never had any educated people act unreasonable. That's a good point, anarchists. Yeah, okay. I filled a man one time, and he acted in a completely unreasonable way. (laughs) He immediately was crying and talking about his church and his children and his wife, and I was just like, dude, what the fuck? You asked for this. Boner kill. Consensual. It was consensual. Yeah. He actually propositioned me. Yeah. That's just how it goes, man. You have have, uh, people who cannot act reasonably. And that's why these people are, these anarchists, they're just out there. They don't understand. They've never been in that situation. And finally, fourth, if everyone is acting rationally, there isn't a need for authority, and everything will be rainbows and sunshine. Especially rainbows. Yes. (laughs) Oh my god, it's full on. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my god. It's very uh, similar to the libertarian beliefs, where if you just leave us alone, we'll all do the right thing. Uh, Anarchists take it a step beyond that. Libertarians believe there should be some government, but it should be very limited. Basically control, like, I own this land, nobody can fuck with my land. That's my stuff. Like, just don't infringe upon my rights, but other than that, do what you want to do. Anarchists believe there should be no fucking authority whatsoever. You shouldn't have a boss. You shouldn't have somebody that hired you to do a job. You shouldn't have a government. Everybody should just live and be left the fuck alone. And, uh, you know, I, I think we should try it. I don't think there could ever be a problem with that happening. There would never be anybody taking advantage of that situation at all. We'd all just get along wonderfully. Never. 
<laughs> I would murder every other podcast host if it was legal. You got to control the market somehow. That's right. Especially all those celebrity ones that got into it. Mm-hmm. Just get COVID and go cough in Joe Rogan's face. Take that motherfucker out. <laughs> Neil Young sends his regards. One of the big proponents of anarchy was a Texan named Albert Parsons. He was a former Confederate soldier who hated slavery and married a freed slave upon returning from the war. When he began to preach socialism in Waco, Texas, home of Chip and Joe, they responded, not, not Chip and Joe, the people of Waco responded by beating and shooting him, forcing him to flee Chicago where his ideals were more widely accepted. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because now I'm picturing fucking... Joanna Gaines, like, coming to that dude with a fucking tire iron, like, get the fuck out of my tail! Kind of like that one better, though. <laughs> Parsons spoke to crowds of thousands in Chicago, and at first mostly spoke of socialist ideals of taking the power away from the bosses and giving it to the workers. But as governmental violence increased against protesters, Parsons began to speak and write more about anarchy and the, quote, propaganda of the deed, end quote, which meant the use of violence to propel a political movement, better known today as terrorism. 9-11, moment of silence. For those that don't know, that's when terrorism was invented. So. <laughs> now, all of this came to a head on May 4th, 1886, when Parsons was giving a speech at Haymarket Square. Three days earlier, on May Day, police had killed six protesters who were demanding the eight-hour workday. Fucking lazy-ass slobs. Parsons gave a passionate speech. Then, with storms blowing in, he took his family and left the square. Shortly thereafter, police showed up and ordered everyone to clear the area. Someone, and no one knows who, threw a bomb and killed a police officer. And now that we've broached the subject, I do believe it was probably that guy who killed a bunch of eight-year-olds. He thought the police were getting too close. So, had to cover its tracks. By killing a random police officer? <laughs> that, guy, or, that guy knew too much. Or was it the investigator? It was the investigator. You know, it's, it's a deep uh, story. It's, it's, it's the novella I'm working on now, and I think okay. it's going to be a big hit. I think uh, people are really going to like it. It'll be the next season of True Detective on HBO, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's the plan. You know, because they do progressively keep getting worse. So that's the obvious next step down is anything based <laughs> on something I've written. <laughs> that's true. Well, after that police officer was killed, the other officers then wildly fired into the crowd and at each other by accident, and another seven people were killed. As a result, Parsons and six other anarchists were rounded up and arrested. Although none of them had thrown the bomb, they were accused of inciting the movement. And all but one of them were sentenced to death, and they were set to be hanged. They became martyrs, and the anarchist movement grew from there. And little known fact, the seven anarchists were defiant to the very end. One blew his whole damn head off with a blasting cap that had been smuggled into prison inside a cigar. Parsons could have had his sentence commuted to life by seeking a gubernatorial pardon, but to do so, he would have had to write a letter declaring his own guilt. 
His last words were, quote, Will I be allowed to speak, O men of America? Let me speak, Sheriff Matson. Let the voice of the people be heard. Oh, <laughs> he was hanged before he could finish his speech. So he was not allowed to speak? Correct. And just for a little bit, they're like, what are your last words? And, you know, you, you can't just write a book at that time. <laughs> okay, we have a limit here. Can't be like uh, Garfield's killer, Charles Coteau, who got to sing a whole fucking song and demand an orchestra. And he's like, I'm going to the Lordy. Yeah. No, we got we got seven people to hang today, motherfucker. Let's let's move this shit along. The limit was twenty words, and I, th- I think he did twenty four, according to me, highlighting this uh, this little quote. It's like the Oscar music started playing halfway through. He's like, "Oh shit, Stop faster, faster!" <laughs> but the Oscar music was that way he felt extra shitty about what he had done (laughs) just so defeated yeah there was somebody in the audience who was going to take the whole thing seriously and convert to anarchism but then he heard the clown music like oh no 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 it's obviously a joke (laughs) (laughs) well while all the anarchism stuff was on the rise William McKinley's career also continued to trend upward After serving as a congressman for a few years, he was elected as the governor of Ohio. By the time 1896 rolled around, the Republican Party was looking for a presidential candidate to support big business and to fight for the gold standard, which kept all American currency tied to actual gold. Turns out a very powerful rich man named Mark Hanna had big plans for his buddy William McKinley and got him nominated. In case you guys don't know what the gold standard is, it basically meant that any paper or coin issued in America was tied to actual gold. Like, it had to be worth a certain amount, like the weight of the gold. And because of that, there could only be a limited amount of currency. And because of that, so many people held the wealth and people couldn't make money and the prices of things deflated. You know, it caused a big economic crisis. Well, on the Democrat side was some libtard named William Bryan, who was staunchly in support of labor movements and ending the gold standard. During his nomination speech, he famously said, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Hey, hey, gold. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't mean for it to go there. That's just where the voice led me. Not even gonna pretend like that was my intention. Hey, man! Sometimes the uh, the medium takes control. Yep, that's you know? true. Yeah, I was good friends with Miss Cleo. <laughs> I would know <laughs> her big Jamaican tits. Brian was such a prolific and powerful speaker that throughout his campaign, he would give over six hundred speeches, and traveled so much and had such a busy schedule that he didn't have time for baths. He would rub gin all over his body to hide the smell of B.O. What an elegant fucking solution to that problem, right? <laughs> well, this has actually happened to me. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like, you know, a police officer's pulled me over mm-hmm. while I've been driving. And uh, you've basically been like, sir, you smell like whiskey. I'm like, well, 
In my defense, officer, <laughs> it's because, uh, you know, I normally smell like shit. And so I cover that by splashing whiskey up in the pits, on the crotch, you know, in the ass crack. Sorry mm-hmm. to be so <laughs> crude. If you're a new listener, I apologize. Um, and he's like, well, why do you do that? I'm like, well, because I'm, you know, I'm a crippling alcoholic, so I don't bathe a lot. And so I use my supplies to kind of keep clean and not smell like shit. He's like, well, if you're a crippling alcoholic, then, you know, you're drinking and getting drunk every day. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, so if you're a crippling alcoholic, you've done that today. I'm like, of course. And he's like, all right, sir, you're under arrest. I'm like, ah. Oh, you got me. You got me. You got me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you got me. And then so you, I, I put my hands behind my back. Ah, uh, see, so you got to play it right because that, a similar situation happened to me, but I did smell like the gin and B.O. And the officer was like, ask for explanation. And I gave this the same explanation. I didn't, I left out the crippling alcoholic part. So, mm. you know, I don't, I don't get to bathe a lot. My wife has kicked me out. I'm bouncing between boarding homes. Um, this just covers up my, my natural musk. And he's like, son, are you trying to tell me you're a 19th century Democratic candidate for president and this is the only way you can smell clean while you're giving your speeches? And I like, pause because I'm like, shit, that's a fucking great excuse. Oh my God, how do you, how do you, yes, sir. That's exactly what I'm saying. He's like, okay, well, you drive safe now. Good luck in that election. I'm like, yes. Mm. Well, you know, some of us get lucky. <laughs> Some of us don't. I think he was ready to go home anyway. It was like towards the end of the shift. Oh, yeah. shift change. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, fuck, no, I'm not doing this. There's too much paperwork. Man, that's why I love shift change. Not going to get a DUI like me. Oh, well. <laughs> well, while Brian was out giving his speeches and bathing in gin, McKinley was sitting at home and demanding that anyone who wanted to speak with him come hang out on his front porch. McKinley's advisor said he should get out there like Brian, but he knew his limits as a speaker, so he refused. Luckily for him, Brian pissed off the wealthy Democrats just as much as he pissed off the Republicans, so they joined forces to raise funds for McKinley and organized a massive mail campaign to promote McKinley as a candidate. While the Republicans were raising over $3.5 million in 1896 dollars, which is like $10 trillion today, the Democrats were struggling and were once again asking for your financial support. It's a Bernie Sanders joke. Indeed it is. 20, 20 Bernie Sanders joke. Two years old. Nailed it. I'm hip, Greg. I know all the latest memes and stuff. So hip. So hip. I am the robot TikTok voice. Why <laughs> is that a thing? I don't know. I hate well, it. I don't even fucking have tiktok but i have friends send me videos and there's a stupid robotic text-to-speech voice over it mm-hmm. what is that i, I hate know. that i don't know i don't understand tiktoks it's not for me i hate kids my wife watches it like constantly and she'll send me a few funny things and then she gets offended if i don't find it funny so I'm like ha, 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 ha. this is my generic response to every one of them but if it has a robot voice i check out immediately oh i hate it no to all of the kids listening, <clears throat> to all of the kid listening, stop that. Except find 100 Proof History on TikTok, just launched this week. We're doing some funny videos with the funny uh, wolf dick 
voice, which sounds exactly like a robot talking. Got him. Except we're not on there, so don't. No, we're not doing it. We're not actually on there, and I'm not going to put that effort into actually promoting this podcast. That's why Charlie Brown did what he did. <laughs> he searched 100 Proof History on TikTok. And <laughs> he killed him. <laughs> Chris, it's not funny. It's hilarious. Don't laugh about that. Oh, sure. The girl pulls back the, the football and he falls on his ass. It's funny. He doesn't get any Halloween candy. You know, he gets a rock instead and it's funny. They get any presents for Christmas and it's funny, but it blows his brains out. No, that's that's too far, I guess. Whatever. Fucking hypocrites. Now they're the bad guys. See how I do that? See how I turn that around on them? No comment. It's called the old Twitter strategy. Just flip it around on everybody, make them the bad guy. And then, you know, you don't have to stand for anything. You just as long as you're you got the moral high ground, man. Oh. You can argue everything all the time. I'm always right. Angle. Always right. God, I love it. Because you're evil. I love it. Sounds like a very uh stressful and contentious way to live. But being right is fun. Yeah. You know? I'm gonna die so young. <laughs> every every time I go poop, there's just nothing but blood. Oh, it's, yeah, it's so oh boy. bad. I'm so torn up on the inside, but you know, I do it for the people. You've won so many fucking arguments, though. So no denying. Yeah. Well, despite all of the Republican fundraising and the Democrat struggles, the vote was still close. In the end, McKinley wound up with 7.1 million votes to Brian's 6.5 million. And if Brian had gotten another 34,000 votes in some key states, he would have wound up winning the Electoral College. But he didn't. And William McKinley became the 25th president of the United States. During his campaign, McKinley had said he was America first and wasn't looking to be a jingoist who sought to gain new territories for the United States. But the economy had been in a tailspin since 1893 because manufacturers refused to ever stop producing goods regardless of what the demand was for them. And this was so crazy to read. It's like, yeah, we can produce 10 billion bicycles this year and we'll only sell a million of them, but we don't really want to stop production. It feels like it's counterproductive, right? Like it would hurt us if we stopped production. Well, I mean, that was his whole platform was... Make as much as you can for us. Yeah. And then once, you know, we don't have any, then make make it for other people. We'll export it. So, yeah. Why would they stop? Well, at this point, they didn't have a lot of places to export it. And so the prices bottomed out, and the lack of circulating currency due to the gold standard wasn't helping. Now, like I said, they could have slowed production. Uh, they could have moved to a different currency system, like the one we have today. But McKinley and his cabinet decided the best course of action was to seek new overseas markets. And boy, was that going to cause a whole bunch of death. The main target was the untapped market in China. But there is a big fucking ocean between the U.S. and China. So there would need to be some bases of operation in between. I think that's where the ice wall is, to be fair. Yeah, that's the end of the earth? The flat edge? Yes. Uh... How does this shit work for those <laughs> I don't people? Know. I don't know how where does the that end shit is. work. Like, do they have to go the other way? I don't understand how do they get to China. Which which direction do you have to go? Now that I'm trying to, like, I mean, we're talking 
two seconds of critical thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does somebody think if they go on a plane to China with a layover in, say, Australia from L.A.? What do they think is going the ice on wall. there? Ice wall has to be somewhere else. Is the ice wall in the Greenwich median thing like the that one? Or is it the know. international are they, date? Are they thinking this is more of a flat projection of Earth? Or maybe they think, hey, I took a nap on that flight from LA to Australia. So they drugged me and flew me to the other side when I was out cold. And everyone. Yes. Because no one else is questioning this. Okay. Well, I don't know. I just I wanted to joke about it, but then... <laughs> you started thinking Now that I'm thinking, it. it's like, man, that is... None of this makes sense. That's very fucking stupid. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. You know, forget the fact that uh, that high up you can see the curvature of the earth. Yeah, whatever. Whatever, man. So yeah, the goal was China, but they needed some some stops along the way. Luckily for McKinley, the Dole Corporation had already seized Hawaii back in 1893, and they were just super horny to have the islands annexed in the United States as a new territory. It's crazy, right? That a corporation could seize lands and basically run a whole country. <laughs> like, I don't, can't think of a history podcast that's ever talked about that. <laughs> I don't think it's weird at all. I don't either. Especially if you listen to episode 104 of 100 Proof History, focusing on the Guatemalan coup of 1954 and the United Fruit Company. In 1897, while McKinley was forcing mapmakers to draw Hawaii in a little box in the corner of all of their new maps, Shit was happening down south in Cuba. In real talk, this does remind me of a story of uh, when I worked for a, it was a national company. Like they had branches and offices all over the country. And I'm obviously in the Texas branch and a lady from California calls and says, hey, we need you to ship this uh, package over to Alaska. And we're like, okay, well, we can do that. But why are you picking us? We have a branch in Washington state. Why can't you have them ship the thing up there? She said, well, I, you're the closest. And we're like, wait, we're the closest? We're like, trying to figure the thing out. And corporate had sent everybody the same map. And you look on the map, and in the Gulf of Mexico on the map is the insert that has Alaska and Hawaii. And she literally thought Alaska was in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so then it becomes a test of morality and, I guess, decency because... You're like, holy fuck, this person's a moron. But how do... Like, I need to let them down softly and not make them feel like a complete moron. And like, well, I guess we can ship it up there, but I, I think you're just looking at the, the map wrong. Um, We're actually very, very far away from Alaska. That's just an insert in the map. And then she has to feel like shit the rest of her... Like, she... Probably 10 years later is waking up in the middle of the night. It's like, I can't believe I fucking said that. Good. <laughs> At that point, good. If you're an adult that's saying that. Oh, man. I have no sympathy. I learned so much about adult intelligence it, it, in that place. At that point, like, you've been given, especially if you're an American, you've been given every opportunity to actually know that. Yeah. If you've graduated high school... You've had multiple times to see maps and know where it is. Like, oh, <laughs> fuck, dude. Do you even need... I uh. See, I feel like you would have lost it on her. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you, are you serious right now? Like, we have the internet. 
and you went to school for, I'm assuming, 13 years of your life, and this is what you've come up with. But uh, no, I was, I was the nice guy. But I learned a lot about human intelligence there. We had a guy from England working there who thought New England was a state, which is understandable. You know, he's from England. He doesn't know everything about America. Yeah, that's normal. But then we had a trucker who'd been born and raised in America come talk to the English guy and spent like 45 minutes asking him questions like, so uh, what language do you speak over there in England? Like, really? It's it's English. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. But what what I know English, but like what kind of English? English. Like, oh, how much is a dollar worth in your country? Like, could I drive trucks in your country? It's like, oh my god, humans are the stupidest. Well, it turns out the Cubans were tired of being ruled by the Spanish and were seeking independence. The movement grew in the U.S., and McKinley went to work trying to negotiate a peace between the rebels and the Spanish government. The mediation stalled a bit when the Spanish prime minister was assassinated by an anarchist, but McKinley was confident he could broker a truce without any actual military action. Just need to put sanctions on Putin, and he'll knock it off. We got it, buddy. Of course. Yep. I'm going to put that little comment right there in a time capsule for... 2023, you know, like episode 150 of Hunter Proof History when we're embroiled in war. And, uh, you know, all of our 12-year-old listeners have been drafted in there and they're dabbing over Russian corpses. You know, like, hey, guys, remember when I said this? Boy, was I stupid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That winter, riots broke out in Havana and Americans began to feel unsafe in the country. In response, McKinley sent the USS Maine down to Cuba, you know, just to keep an eye on things. He really had no interest in starting a war, despite his assistant secretary of the Navy, one Theodore Roosevelt, constantly shouting, Let's fuck Spain shit up, bro! And he was working behind the scenes to orchestrate a conflict. On February 15th, 1898, the Maine suddenly exploded, killing 266 American sailors. The public just knew that Spain had done it, but McKinley, being level-headed, ordered an inquest into the sinking. After examining the wreck, naval experts concluded that the ship had been sunk by a naval mine, and Spain was the only one who could have put it there. Now, the main had a massive design flaw in that the gunpowder was kept in a room that sat up against a wall that was superheated by the ship's engines, and almost a hundred years later, scientists would definitively prove the explosion had been an accident and not a mine, but none of that shit mattered in 1898. The U.S. was going to war with a European empire. Before William McKinley could even formulate a plan for the fight against Spain in Cuba, Teddy Roosevelt went to fucking work. If a ship was for sale anywhere in the world, he bought it to add to the U.S. Navy. He began issuing orders to have ships head toward the Spanish-owned Philippines with hopes of capturing it and using it as a shipping port on the way to China. And once again, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. He wasn't even in charge of the Navy. His boss, John Long, who had a really cool name but was kind of cucked out of his position, <laughs> he was hot pissed that his authority was usurped but he did little in the way of going against Teddy's plans. It's like, this motherfucker. Can't believe he's overstepped. Oh, that's a really good idea, though. I really fucking like that. 
is there any way I can take credit for that? I said, no, no, sir. He's going to take credit for that, and it's going to propel him to future greatness. Ah, damn it. Can he have sex with my wife while I watch? Yeah, we can arrange that. Fuck yes, I'm John Long. <laughs> well, yeah, his name was, well, his nickname anyway, was John, quote, my wife's boyfriend is, unquote, <laughs> Long. <laughs> so... You know, he he fit the bill. Yeah. Him and his wife are sitting there just having drinks on the couch, and they hear, a, you know, the doorbell ring. She opens it. It's Teddy with his tiny glasses and his big mustache, and he sits down, like, in between John and his wife, puts his arm around the wife, and takes a sip from a martini, and he's like, hey, John, you ever hear my favorite expression? And John's like, no, no sir. No, sir. I don't. What is that? Speak softly. Carry a big stick. Mm. <laughs> oh, stupid. <laughs> but it took a while to get there, so double stupid. Yeah, yeah. The man taking the U.S. Navy to the Philippines was Commodore George Dewey, who knew so little about the island chain that he sent his officers to Hong Kong to buy maps and find locals who knew anything at all about the country. In doing so, they found Filipino rebel Emilio Aguinaldo, who had dreams of becoming the George Washington of the Philippines and pitched in the support of his rebels. Now, remember how we had said McKinley had campaigned on America first and non-expansion? Even though he admitted that he, quote, could not have told who those darn islands were <sighs> within 2,000 miles. Give me a milkshake, darling. He also realized that holding a port there was crucial for keeping big business going in the States and changed his ways of thinking to, while we are conducting war and until its conclusion, we must keep all we can get. When the war is over, we must keep what we want. I haven't seen my penis in 10 years. End quote. On April 25th, 1898, Commodore Dewey was given permission to attack the Philippine capital of Manila Paper. Or just Manila. Yeah, but why do we call it Manila Paper? I don't understand. Like, is it from that region? I don't know what the fuck that is. I only know Manila folders. Well, it's the same thing. It's kind of like the the tannish color. No, you shut the fuck up. (laughs) Those are different things. (laughs) It's construction paper that is the same color as Manila folders. I only know French vanilla ice cream. It's delicious. I'll put (laughs) chocolate syrup on it. Thank you. I only know Manila Vanilla, the greatest Jamaican rock group of all time. So, suck my dick. On May 1st, Dewey spotted the Spanish fleet chilling in a shallow water bay near Manila. He immediately attacked and launched several raids on the stationary targets. The smoke from the guns filled the area and both sides fired blindly at each other. When the firing ceased, the Americans were astounded to see that they had wiped out the Spaniards and had control of Manila Bay all to themselves. This news was sent back to D.C., where an elated McKinley ordered another 20,000 ground troops to be sent to the islands to hold them. In a war that had been created to liberate Cubans, the U.S. had acquired territory in the far-off Pacific long before a single shot was ever fired in Cuba. Hmm. 
Sounds like U.S. foreign policy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, huh? You're supposed to free those people. Well, what? But what? What's in it for us? Hmm. Hmm. I guess Greg will tell you what's in it for us after this break. Oh, I will. All right, we are back from break. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you had a good time. I know I did. Stayed up here in this top floor of the boarding home with the other convicts. Played a little bit of uh, you know, the video games. Finally figured out what happens when you beat the first level of Mario. It's pretty cool. They got like, fireworks and shit. It's pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, didn't have to talk to my wife, who's... Once again, busting my balls by not paying child support and alimony. So, I had a good time. A really good time. I'm sure, Greg, you had a good time as well in that 16-day break we just took between the second half and first half. <laughs> Come on, man. Like, I get that it's kind of a meme that we take a while in between each half. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we actually do. And you don't have to lie about it. I was on my weekend prison sentence, and then now I'm on my, you know, get-out-of-jail-work program, so I think that's funny enough. Right, yeah, that's true. Or not funny. Especially if our listeners do that Freedom of Information Act request and find out what you arrested for. That was fucking hilarious. (laughs) Ah, the old foyer. That's the only foyer I'll ever have. (laughs) I know. I do. Mainly because of restitution. Yeah. And no one will hire Lawyer fees. Yeah. All that. Right there with you. But you know what? That's for them to look up on their own damn time because this is our time. And at this time of every show, we do the same thing. We pop the top on our second half seltzers. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Three, two, great, great, can one pop. All right, now we've had our seltzers. I think we're ready to dive into this uh, second half of the story. Enjoy our second half seltzers with it, and to take you home to make sure you get home safe tonight. Here's your Uber driver, Greg. I believe it's Eddie Money that sang the. Great American, nay world classic, Take Me Home Tonight, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Sir Edward Monetary, that's what I know him by, but yes. I would be the Uber driver that shows up and rolls down the window, looking at Eddie Money and just does the old, like, lick the two fingers eyebrows. Oh, yeah. Spread apart thing, Yeah, but then also does the lick the fingers mustache Thing. Like, Where you going, baby? He's like, um, home. Are you sure? Come on, baby. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, anyway, that was the end of that joke. You ready, Chris? You say, I'm going to take you home tonight. He's like, oh my God. <gasps> I was looking for a hit. And I there sang it is. about this. <laughs> oh, no. 
And then he died of a mysterious illness. Yeah, the same thing that killed uh, Jenny from Forrest Gump. Or cancer, you know. You ready? Fucking gold digging Jenny. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Now I'm angry. But yes, I'm ready. Let's tell the rest of the story. All right. Following the capture of Manila Bay in May of 1898, the next target for the McKinley administration was the tiny island of Guam. U.S. naval forces set sail for the island from Hawaii in June. When they arrived, they fired on the Spanish fort but received no response. Eventually, the Spaniards on the island came out and apologized because they thought the shells that were fired on them were part of a salute, and they had no shells to fire back in response. (laughs) (laughs) Man, U.S. military might. They had absolutely no idea that the U.S. and Spain were even at war. They immediately surrendered the island to the Americans. It was around the same time that U.S. forces landed on the Cuban coast. This army featured the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry, better known as the Rough Riders. Favorite DMX song. This ragtag group was led by Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and again, Assistant Secretary of the (laughs) Navy, Teddy Roosevelt, and was composed of all of his richest buddies. Through Cuban rebels, they learned that the Spanish were hiding out in a bay near Santiago. It was here, at a hill overlooking the bay, known as Kettle Hill, that Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders made a name for themselves. Colonel Roosevelt led his men in a brave and probably stupid charge up the hill into the teeth of the Spanish guns. They took heavy casualties, but the Americans had the Gatling gun, and that caused so much panic in the Spanish that they fled the hill. Yeah, it's really funny because, like, Teddy is charging. He's on horseback leading this fucking charge. And, like, all around him, dudes are, like, dropping to the ground for cover because they're running uphill against guns that are firing downhill, which we've talked about several times. This is just the stupidest fucking strategy. And, like, he'll see a dude laying on the ground. He's like, what are you, fucking pussy? I'm the colonel. Look at me. I'm on the horseback leading the charge, and you're just laying there like a little bitch. And they get up and get killed immediately, and he's like, Pfft. Whatever, fucking weak-ass bitch. (laughs) Not realizing that everybody's shooting at him and just missing and killing everyone around him as he's running up this fucking hill. (laughs) Like, what a fucking dickhead. Dude, what are you doing down there? Look at me. I'm in my hat. I got my glasses. And sword. What the fuck are you doing? Fucking pussy. A simultaneous attack was being led on nearby San Juan Hill. Roosevelt gave orders to move from Kettle Hill to the other battle, but when he got there, he was royally fucking pissed that only five men had come with him. When he got back to Kettle Hill, the men who had stayed simply explained they hadn't heard his order. By the time he got back across to San Juan Hill with all of his men, the Spanish had once again fled their positions. And for that, he was given the Medal of Honor. Salute. That's not true. That's that. I just made that up, but it's like, like he's this great hero because what he did in Cuba. And he's like, I ran up a hill, and the Spanish ran away. Then I ran to another hill, and my men didn't come with me. And then I ran back and back across. And then when I got back, everybody was gone. But goddamn, if I didn't save the day. He just flexes over the bay. (laughs) (laughs) On horseback. Just flexing. Rips his shirt off. Yeah, so muscular. Little mustaches under his nipples, you know. (laughs) That's how the legend is born. (laughs) That's right. 
He looks over at a soldier and he's like, you know what I told Greg's wife, right? I'm like, what? Why is he always bringing this shit up? I told her to speak softly because I carry a big stick. <laughs> you know? Yes, Teddy. We've heard that one before. Yeah, no, we know we get it, Teddy. Every time you have a drink, it you start telling the same fucking story about fucking Greg's wife. We we get it, okay? It, it was the coolest moment of your life. Fuck Jesus Christ. And this might be uh, something going forward, listener, like real talk. I think Chris thinks highly of, a lot more highly, of Roosevelt than I do. I just, I think a lot of his, uh, his warring and his just being a frontier man was a little self-inflated. But Chris does not. There's a reason we haven't done an episode on Teddy yet. And it's because it will be the last fucking episode we do. We will spar... The whole damn time. It will not get published. It'll just be the end of the show. Can it be next episode? <laughs> not according <laughs> to our contract, apparently. <laughs> yeah, but if one of us dies, surely that's no <laughs> void. If we have the Alexander Hamilton, you know, Aaron Bird duel in New Jersey because of Teddy Roosevelt's show, that will get us out of the contract. Don't spoil Things we haven't covered. I'm oh, sorry. You can only correct. reference things we've covered. <laughs> God damn it. <sighs> I swear to God, Chris. I swear. <laughs> On July 3rd, 1898, the U.S. Navy had what remained of the Spanish Navy surrounded at the Cuban port town of Santiago. The Spanish attempted to break through the blockade, but took a ton of casualties before surrendering. For all intents and purposes, the Spanish-American War was over. As spoils, McKinley demanded that Spain give the U.S. control of Cuba, Guam, and throw in Puerto Rico for good measure. At that point, he wasn't sure if he wanted all of the Philippines or just wanted to control Manila, so they'd have to hash that out later. Yeah, and here's the weird thing about the Spanish-American War. I didn't. I thought it was a bigger deal. Like, I never really studied it. You know, it, it was like glazed over in high school history, but everything was because it was taught by a football coach who didn't want to be there. <laughs> kind of a small thing. It is a really small thing. It lasted like three months and like 2,000 dudes were killed. And, you know, I mean, it's like not that big of a war. It wasn't even a 9-11. Right. It was true. Yeah. It was a 9-11 stretched out over like three months. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm tired of this shit. Let's move on. Let's talk about something else now, you know? 3,000 people died in 9-11. Yeah, but that was more than the Spanish-American War. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't even a 9-11. <laughs> Which, over three months, and in, in a, a war with multiple battles, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, when you put it like that, I mean, I get it, every life is a life. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know. I thought it would be its own show, like we could do an hour and a half on the Spanish-American War. Then I read this book, and then I looked more into it, and I was like, oh, never mind, we'll scratch that off the fucking topic list. That's like five minutes within another show. But especially, not even a 9-11. <laughs> yeah. At this point, the eagle doesn't even cry. No. You know what I mean? There was never a never forget the Spanish-American War, because everybody's like, oh, that was it? Okay, well, yay, we did it. All right. And that was a much larger portion of the American population at the time. Yes. Over in the Philippines, the rebel leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, 
declared himself governor of the island and told the Americans not to land any more troops without permission. Of course, they ignored his ass and demanded the actual governor, a Spaniard, surrender the island to the Americans. The governor said he couldn't surrender straight up, but they could stage a fake battle where the U.S. comes out on top and he looked like he went down fighting. The U.S. agreed, but the rebels weren't told, and they joined in on the fighting. Before the fake battle was over, six Americans and 49 Spaniards had been killed. Hold on, let me rephrase that in uh, a Chris-style sentence. Before the fake battle was over, six Americans That's right. and 49 Spaniards had been killed. And I'm proud to be an American. You're a scumbag. They're all humans. Well, at least I know I'm free. And you know what? The most important part of this, I won't forget the men who died gave their right to me. The six of them. Yes. All In a six fake battle. <laughs> oh. Okay. The United States had won. So technically, the Cubans and Filipinos were free from Spanish rule. Now it was time for them to experience the benevolence of the kind American rule. It was funny because they were like, oh, these brown people, they don't know what they're doing. We, we need to help them for at least a few years. That's right? hilarious, Chris. Yes. Plantations and farmlands were bought up by Americans at a rapid pace, and the U.S. denied the rebels the opportunity to run their own country because they didn't think they were organized enough. When McKinley decided that God had told him the U.S. should control all of the Philippines and not just Manila, he took the entire island chain for the Spanish. I mean, what are you going to do if God tells you? You got to do it. You got to do it. This is an example of our main source apologizing for McKinley because he's like, you know, McKinley, yes. really, he really didn't want to expand the U.S. He didn't want this imperialism, but he woke up one night and he, he had a dream where God had told him he, it was his destiny. So he did it. I mean, probably. I know he was a good Christian man, so uh, that's what happened. Can't fault him for subjugating a whole nation. Rubber stamp. (laughs) We're good. In early 1899, the Filipinos rebelled, but their rebellion was easily squashed by U.S. troops. Yes, Greg, little known fact, it was during that Philippine-American War, the U.S. soldiers developed a policy of no prisoners. To root out the insurgents, they burned down entire villages and killed any man, woman, and child they believed had helped the rebellion in any way. And Anakin Skywalker just jizzed his pants. I just like to throw that in because every time we mention high ground, I said Obi-Wan jizzed his pants. So here we go. Okay. Okay. I was wondering. <laughs> Colonel Arthur Lockwood would later acknowledge that innocent people were killed but he justified it by pointing out that even God himself had destroyed Sodom. That's always a winning strategy. <laughs> Compare yeah. yourself to God. Yes. Right? Yeah. Luckily, we abandoned these tactics and they never showed up, especially during another conflict with the South Pacific nation that lasted a decade in the mid-20th century. We never, we never used these same tactics again. Now, I get what you're saying. Uh-huh. I want to go back to what I was saying. Okay. <laughs> like, what the fuck? What the the hubris of comparing yourself to God. Number one, <laughs> on both hands, you're wrong, right? Yeah. Number one, you're comparing yourself to God, mm-hmm. which is like, 
okay. That's well, a big Why would you ever no-no. do that? Yeah, right, right? And on the other hand, if you do not believe that God exists, then it's also kind of a, a moot point. Yeah. So I feel like either way from whether you're coming from religiosity <laughs> or not, this is this comment is just it's so stupid. Yeah. Like if you got arrested tomorrow, like you were convicted of killing like twenty male prostitutes, like wait, wait, wait. How many prostitutes died in the Haiti earthquake ten years ago? You ever think about that? God did that. So Or again, just go Sodom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. All the Sodomites. God did it. Why can't I? Uh, all right, I'll see you guys later, right? I'm not convicted of this thing, right? <laughs> Free to go. Just to be clear, I'm not hanged. I'm hung. Right? <laughs> and then I wake up from my dream. Yeah. <laughs> We're at a moderately above average size penis. <laughs> <laughs> With control of Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines, the Americans had now established a trade route to China. And, as a bonus, they got the Brits, the French, and the Germans to agree that no one would go to war over the trade rights and that they'd all trade freely with the Chinese. But no one told the Chinese they were coming. They wanted to be a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah, is that... especially good for a nation like China at the time, which <laughs> really wasn't a lot of uh, communication going on. It was a gigantic territory of interconnected... Slightly, I should say, interconnected territories. Yeah, different groups and religions. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, it's fine. It's fine. It'll work out tremendously. They're gonna see a white face. They're gonna be like, "Okay, this guy's in charge." Apparently, that's cool. Yeah, I believe him. <laughs> well, listener, some superstitious Chinese citizens who believe things like all foreigners were demons and their locomotives were dragons attacked Christian missionaries and businessmen in what became known as the Boxer Rebellion. Eventually, the U.S. and European powers joined forces to put this rebellion down, but it was just another case of people dying in their homelands so the Americans could make money in their homeland. And you know what? It fucking worked. By 1900, American exports were skyrocketing and the economy had completely recovered. Despite being called an imperialist and a conqueror, McKinley was a shoe-in to win re-election. His former vice president, Garrett Hobart, had died in the winter of 1899 and was replaced by a self-made war hero in Teddy Roosevelt. Hey, he's like fucking Betty White! <laughs> 1899. Almost made it. He almost got to that century mark. He almost made it. It's kind of funny how Teddy did this, too, because... No one asked him to be the vice president candidate. Like, he showed up in Washington one day. He's like, I don't want to be the vice president. And everybody's like, okay. Nobody asked you. We didn't say, hey, you want to be vice president? He's like, ah, cool, cool, cool. Because I don't want to be it because I'm too cool for it. Uh, You know, I'm I'm honestly overqualified. It's basically what he did. He's like, I'm a war hero. You know, (laughs) I I shouldn't be vice president. That's a do-nothing job. That shouldn't be me. Don't even nominate me. And they're like... You know who would be a good nominee? That fucking Teddy Roosevelt. That guy's a war hero, man. That old, that old Teddy. He's so fuzzy and 
Yeah. He's got that little button nose. <laughs> so cuddly. You remember how he charged those two hills and the Spaniards had it completely abandoned, but then somehow convinced us that it was brave and he'd save the whole fucking war effort? Oh, man, that guy's awesome. We should make Ripped him Ripped off his it. shirt and put on his cool <laughs> hat and glasses and his sex. Let's be honest, guys. I love my wife, but that is a sexy mustache. <laughs> that is a sexy mustache. You are joking Why right now. Why is he now. not? Why is he not vice president-elect? You're joking right now, but uh, that mustache is sexy as fuck. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Why do you think I'm growing mine back out? <laughs> After studying this, I was like, you know what? And my teddy That's mustache. what the main host needs. A little teddy back in his life. All right. Where was I? Well, that fall, the Republicans scored the biggest victory in decades. Yep. Everything was looking up for old Will McKinley. But in less than a year, he'd be dead by the hands of a young anarchist named Leon Cholgush. I like to call him Leo Coleslaw. If you're driving along in your, your little Prius, mm-hmm. it's C-Z-O-L-G-O-S-Z. And somehow it's Cholgush. But in my head, it was always Leo Coleslaw. Just made him so much fucking cooler. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, ladies and gentlemen, I have an idea, and that's to kill the president, but also I have an invention that is going to blow the mind of white people. A whole new use for mayonnaise. Look at this shit. You can put it on a sandwich, eat it with your chicken. Oh, man, it's so good. I wish he had invented coleslaw. <laughs> it would have made it so the that it so much better. Died place. with him. <laughs> I eat coleslaw, too. It's awful. Well, Leon Brian Laundrie Coleslaw, or Cholgosh, <laughs> as we will call him, was born in 1873 after his family had immigrated from Poland. And this is actual Poland, oh. not Poland, Ohio, like we've spoken of earlier. I thought that was a nice bit of symmetry, but I guess I'm an idiot. That would be quite the quinky dink, as they call it. Right? On the cuck. Message boards. Quinky <laughs> dink. I don't know. Maybe it's from elsewhere, but I know it's on the cuck message board. <laughs> I came home and there was another man there. What a quinky dink. Yep. I also ejaculated at the same time he did, but in the closet as I cried. What a quinky dink. What a quinky dink. <laughs> <laughs> My wife threw a saturated blanket over my face when she discovered I was there. <laughs> Strange. Kowinky dinks. Yeah. Just sitting around the water cooler, sipping the paper cup of water in his, you know, his khakis. Just, what a kowinky dink, right, fellas? <laughs> oh, hey, did you guys see uh, America's Next Top Model last night? No, but... <laughs> <laughs> my wife is fucking Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> This blanket's still moist all these hours later. <laughs> Feel it. Feel it, guys. <laughs> why did you why'd you bring that to work? What is wrong with you, man? A lot of things. Just please feel it. Don't make me feel alone. Have you fellows ever heard of edging? No? <laughs> Let me tell you what I'm going through this very instance. 
I'm about to go to the break room and go off the edge, so to speak. <laughs> well, Cholgosh, his family, like we said, immigrated from Poland. They were poor, but full of hard workers who were proud to be in America. His mom up and died of death when he was 10. And when he was 14, Leon got his first job working in a glass factory for 75 cents a day. Whoa. Uncle fucking penny bags from Monopoly there. Slow down. Mr. Maserati. Whoa. Eventually, that wasn't enough. So Leon joined the labor market and walked off of his job. That just meant he was put on a blacklist and would be impossible to hire. He sought refuge in social groups, and it was here that he first learned of socialism and anarchy. The idea that he could do nothing and live a free existence was pretty appealing to Leon because he was inherently lazy and just wanted to be left the fuck alone. Still, he needed money. So, in 1893, he went back to work under the fake name Fred C. Neiman, which made him feel clever because Neiman is German for nobody. Got him. Oh, <laughs> stupid. <yes. laughs> the world is in my hands. They don't I'm know. Fred C. Nobody. <laughs> I'm so clever. They'll never catch me. As the years progressed, Leon became obsessed with anarchist writings and collected news clippings telling the story of anarchists assassinating political figures in countries like France and Italy. In 1898, Cholgosh a.k.a. Coleslaw, having grown tired of working in a factory and dealing with the urban violence tied to the labor movement, moved back home to live on his dad's farm in Ohio. He was incredibly lazy and refused to do much of anything, which pissed his stepmom, Katerina, off to no end. And boy, I tell you, if I had a stepmom named Katerina, I don't care what she looks like, that's exotic. I'd be trying to please her. <laughs> like, hey, you seen the front page of Pornhub lately? No? Well, let me enlighten you to the ways of the world. <laughs> Why don't you just uh, get those clothes out of the dryer and I'll come along and act like, oh, oh I'm sorry, oh my God, I didn't realize I you were here. <laughs> you were so stuck, this is the only way I can help you. Plus, uh, ma'am, may I say, you make a very good dressing for a salad. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> and just to drive this joke further into the ground, <laughs> me and my stepmom, we would have some wine in the backyard, and maybe things would happen. Mm-hmm. We'd call it the Katerina, Katerina wine, wine mixer. mixer. Jesus. No, Katerina, Chris. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. It's my podcast. <laughs> anyway. Well, Leon and his stepmom, Katerina, they hated each other to the point that Leon wouldn't even eat in the house when she was home. He'd disappear for days at a time, not telling anyone where he was going, and eventually, they just stopped asking. You know, when your son shows up naked on the doorstep with pockmarks and a condom hanging out of his asshole. <laughs> you just, you don't ask. No. You know. You know. Hey, you want, you want some bacon? We've made, we made bacon and toast this morning. You want to come on in and just have some breakfast? Mm-mm. Chickpeas only. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Chris. Uh, yes. You know what the difference between a garbanzo bean and a chickpea is? 
I, I don't. Never had a garbanzo bean on my face. <laughs> I've also never had a chickpea on my face, but yeah. I, I just heard it one time. <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> Jokes aside, well, it was on one of these trips in 1901 that he went to Cleveland and heard a speech from noted anarchist Emma Goldman. Goldman had taken up the mantle left behind by Albert Parsons and preached violence and terrorism. Or, you know, propaganda through action. Propaganda of the deed, yeah. It sounds so cool. It sounds way less fucked up. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 it's not terrorism, it's propaganda. Cholgosh ate that shit up and would let her say her words burned in his head with such intensity that it made his skull hurt. It made blood rush to his crotch region for some reason, watching her talk, and wanting to please her in any possible way. Just made him feel alive. Like, maybe if he did something big, she would love him. You know? Like a big, grand, romantic gesture. Like it was Cardi B on that stage. Scantily mm. clad, twerking the entire time. Mm -hmm. And he just thought it was the words being delivered. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. When I saw Megan the Stallion live, I thought I should kill the president. That would get her attention. She'd love me. But you thought that about a long ago distant fictional president, right? Yes. Not this. Yeah. Okay. No. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Because that shit will get you arrested, Chris. <laughs> Well, even though the anarchist papers denounced violence against President McKinley, the idea, it began to gain appeal with Cholgosh, began to fester with Mr. Coleslaw. The mayonnaise started going bad. <laughs> when Cholgosh returned to the farm, he was so fed up with his life that he demanded they buy out his portion of the inheritance. His family gladly gave him $70 and told him to fuck off. This dude was making 75 cents a day at a window yeah. factory. So we're talking under 100 days of work. Yeah, that's your inheritance. He got bought out for from an, his inheritance. What the fuck? Cha-ching, motherfuckers. I land on a free parking at the 50 bucks that everybody just puts in there, basically, to start with, and I'm fucking loaded. Number one, that's not Monopoly rules, and I hate people that do that shit <laughs> yeah. on free parking and Monopoly. Number two, I bet this motherfucker was doing the suck it symbol the whole yeah. time. Like, give me that 70, hell yeah. <laughs> Making doing it rain with his, his seven tens. Put <laughs> in the air. Well, Leon then began seeking out famous anarchist writers and trying to become their buddies. He'd say things to them in broken English and ask questions like, Are you a member of Secret Society? Which just creeped them the fuck out and made them think he was a spy. I don't know why. I mean, if you got one of these, like, <laughs> societies that it's not secret, but, but you're definitely subversive. Yeah. You know that you're going to be infiltrated. Or attempts are going to, <laughs> going to be made for infiltration. And this dude shows up asking dumbass questions like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's going <laughs> to 
you know, fuck's make wrong the hair with you, stand dude. up. Like, what yeah. the fuck? No, get out of here. You see a drug dealer on the corner, you're like, do you sell illegal narcotics? <laughs> yes, exactly. Speak into my, my flower. Please tell me. One time I went to Amsterdam and uh, a dude was in an alleyway and he was like, you want any cocaine or ecstasy? And I was like, looked over both shoulders. <laughs> no, of course not. I don't do drugs and, can, and walked on like, fuck, fuck. I could have had cocaine and ecstasy tonight. What is well, this for? <laughs> or I could I be arrested. You're just staring at the ceiling of your hotel room the entire night like, oh, was it real? Fuck. It was It was so sketched that it's one of those things. You, it was like, this is a goddamn setup and I know it. Yeah. But, it but what if wasn't. it wasn't? <laughs> yeah. But it probably was. Who knows? Well, the anarchists thinking that you know, he might be a spy. They put a notice in their anarchist papers to be on the lookout for a weirdo freak that called himself Fred C. Neiman. I like how it's, uh, <laughs> you, you know, it's anarchists and their anarchist papers. Yeah. They go to their anarchist McDonald's and have their little <laughs> anarchist parties. Let me check my anarchist Facebook real yeah, quick. Drink their little <laughs> anarchist mojitos. Ugh, hate them. <laughs> The organized anarchists, yes. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. They have a, a governmental body, actually, that kind of <laughs> controls all this stuff. The meets, the greets, the meet and greets. Mm, yes. You know, it's all governmental body activity. <laughs> well, at the same time that all of this was happening, President McKinley was on a whirlwind tour of the Western United States with a plan to make his way back across the country to the Pan American Expo in Buffalo, New York. Unfortunately, his wife Ina's health worsened to the point where <sighs> she couldn't be cured by covering her face with a thin piece of cloth any oh, longer. Man. Yeah. So the trip had to be shortened, and the journey to the Expo was pushed back to September of 1901. In the meantime... The Secret Service and the Buffalo Police began preparing for the visit. They're going to nail this shit. They got like three, four months to prepare for this one visit. They're going to fucking knock it out of the park. And y'all are going to be like, why'd they even do a podcast on this dumbass subject? Yeah. And why did they tease McKinley's natural death? This pisses <laughs> me off. I've listened this long. Nay, listener of podcast. Hold your horses. Leon Cholgosh moved to Buffalo that summer for seemingly, like, completely unrelated reasons, right? Yeah, it, it was unrelated. There was a bunch of Polish people there. He just kind of, like, moved up there. Like, no one really knows why, unless it was a grand conspiracy. Ooh. But no, it wasn't. No. Uh, Leon stayed in a boarding home for $3 a month under the name John Doe. It would still mysteriously disappear for days on end, saying he had, quote, meetings. Same thing I tell my wife when I get a grinder like, Oh, I got a meeting nut! Oh, gotta go! <laughs> As the summer ended, he went back to Cleveland to buy anarchist papers and then went to Chicago hoping to see Emma Goldman you know, the anarchist speaking leader once more. Simping so hard for her. 
Oh, dude, simping ain't easy. No. When Leon was there, he saw a newspaper advertising President McKinley's trip to Buffalo. Cholgosh booked it straight back to western New York and bought a thirty-two caliber Johnson revolver. On September 5, 1901, President McKinley arrived at the expo and gave a speech. Cholgosh was in attendance, but couldn't decide if his gun would be accurate from a distance. Eventually, the president left, and a dejected Leon went back to the local bar, drank some whiskey, my man, and went to bed. The next morning, as the president was being given a tour of Niagara Falls, Leon read in the Buffalo papers that McKinley would be meeting and greeting the public at the expo's Temple of Music at 4 p.m. This is a running fucking theme for all of our assassination stories, our presidential assassinations. Like, the fucking papers keep printing where the president's gonna be at a certain time of the day. Like, even you know, fucking 62 years later for the Kennedy yeah. assassination. The like, oh, yeah, fourth be one. <laughs> yeah. These three happen in a very short period of time. Yeah. Relatively. And they still do it all those years later. It's like, what the fuck? Within 35 years, it's like, hey, the president's going to be here. I'm like, oh, we probably shouldn't have said that because this guy keeps figuring it out. He keeps fucking killing the president. And then in 63, you're like, hey, here's exactly the route the president's going to take that day when he uh, comes to visit your town. You know, no, no, nobody worry about it, though. Nobody fucking shoot him on this exact route. It'll be here at this exact moment in time. I think newspapers and the media are the enemy of the public. And I think that fashion media, mm-hmm. you know, what they tell you you should love, mm-hmm. is the enemy of the pubic. <laughs> I don't want to trim my pubic hair, Chris. I'm supposed to have, what, a big wiener? Uh... <laughs> No pubic hair. Get out of here, man. I'm not buying it. (laughs) I'm not buying it. I'm not fucking sheeple. And I hope you guys aren't either. Because I don't have any of those things. (laughs) And y'all need to realize this is what a real man looks like. An acorn glued on a bush. And... A crack that just goes from my legs to my, like, middle back. Yeah, just straight up. Just straight the fuck up. That's all it is. And that's all it should be. It's functional, okay? Yeah, that's right. That said, I do still require the uh, hentai model of a woman. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it's only fair. Well, I mean, you know, it's just, you know. I guess I don't have a further argument for for what I'm saying, but I'm just saying, you know, one of us has to carry a baby and one of us doesn't, okay? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. lay off! <laughs> Where am I? I don't even know. That afternoon, visitors, including Cholgosh, lined up and moved past two columns of soldiers who were there to scrutinize the guests and look for potential danger. Neither they, the Secret Service, nor the police noticed that Leon had his right hand stuffed in a coat pocket and refused to remove it. Soon thereafter, the president arrived and began shaking hands one by one. When he got to Leon Cholgosh, the young Polish immigrant pulled out a bulging hand 
that was wrapped in a handkerchief. Underneath it was not McKinley's wife, <laughs> but it was a thirty-two caliber revolver. Cholgosh jammed the gun into the president's ribs and fired two times. An African-American man named James Parker jumped on Cholgosh and began hitting him. And, you know, anybody wondering why I'm saying that, this isn't long after the Civil War, so. Yeah, this guy's this guy's excited to meet the president. He was right behind Cholgosh in line. He's like, yes. He tried talking mm-hmm. to Cholgosh, and Cholgosh was such a fucking antisocial weirdo that he wouldn't respond. <laughs> you ever heard of Emma Goldman? I have some of her pictures here. <laughs> you want to smell these panties? <laughs> well, after James Parker started it, suddenly there were a ton of men that were on top of Leon, and they're beating the absolute dog shit out of him. As they dragged him away, he simply said, I done my duty. The soldiers beat him with rifles. The men picked him up, punched him in the face and stomach, and when he fell, they did it all over again. It wasn't until a weak and bleeding President McKinley said, Don't let them hurt him, that the beating stopped. Eighteen minutes after the shooting, the president was rolled into the exposition hospital. Surgeons were called in from other hospitals, with his main physician being mostly known as a leading authority on gynecology. <laughs> All right, which vagina is this man shot in? <laughs> Sir? <I don't... laughs> <laughs> the operating room was such a shithole that the surgeon's assistant had to use mirrors to reflect sunlight into the room so the surgeon could actually even see the wound. Golly. Excellent contribution, Chris. Golly. Excellent contribution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the bullets had hit a coat pocket and had barely broken McKinley's skin, but the other had gone into his stomach. McKinley's OBGYN <laughs> was able to stitch up the wounds to his stomach and clean it up as best as he could. For a while, it looked as if McKinley would fully recover. But at 2.15 a.m. on September 14, 1901, eight days after he was shot, President William McKinley died of massive infection, just as President James Garfield had done 20 years earlier. The doctor's like, I did everything right. I put all the tampons in this man's orifices. Nothing stopped it. Nothing stopped the bleeding. I don't understand. (laughs) Oh... (laughs) <laughs> I even gave him more of my doll than is recommended. <laughs> I don't know what could have happened. I gave him chocolate. We watched Friends together. He cried a little when Ross and Rachel broke up. I thought he was on the path to recovery. <laughs> I cuddled him and told him I really did love him. <laughs> That's just... My personal experience with my wife. I'm not being sexist. That's just how, <laughs> That's how it she is operates. My personal life. I want to make that clear. Very specific examples were just given. Yes. 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 Leon Cholgosh confessed immediately and said he was a follower of Emma Goldman and he had killed the president to further the cause of anarchy. He attempted to plead guilty at his trial, but the judge refused to accept his plea 
And put them on trial anyway. <laughs> Waste of time. That's so stupid. What? <laughs> yeah, fuck you. No, you're not pleading guilty. We're gonna find you fucking guilty, motherfucker. You don't break up with me. I break up with you. You piece of shit. <laughs> his court, ap- his court appointed lawyer did little to defend him and basically begged people not to associate him with his client's actions. It took only 33 minutes for the jury to convict Cholgosh of the murder of the president. And most of that was them killing time, so no one you know, would accuse them of not taking their roles as jurors seriously. Like, just looking at her watch, she's like, long enough? can we go back in there? No, 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 just a few more minutes, a few more minutes. So, he killed them, right, guys? Yeah. Pam. We've gone over it ten times. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have nailed it. He confessed, you moron. God, well, why are we doing? Well, we- all right. So one more time, one more time. You killed him. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Pam, shut up. Shut up, Pam. Jesus. <laughs> On October twenty ninth, nineteen oh one, Leon Cholgush was led to the electric chair. His last words were, quote, "I killed the president for the good of the laboring people, the good people." I am not sorry for my crime, but I am sorry I can't see my father. With that, the switch was thrown, and 1,700 volts were pumped through his body for 45 seconds until it was confirmed that he was good and dead. Well, you're smarter than me. I, I think this is clear through 106 episodes of podcasting. 1,700 volts doesn't sound like a lot, but 45 seconds sounds like a lot. Like, I, I'm trying to make the, the connection there. Like, it feels like... When it comes to electricity, I'm also not smart. Okay, but fair enough. I, <laughs> I know that amperage means a lot in this whole scenario. So you can have a lot of volts in a small amperage or less volts in a lot of amperage. Sounds like this dude fucking suffered. Yeah, I feel like he deserved it maybe a little bit because I'm a horrible person, but... It's like 45 fucking seconds just being like this low voltage. I don't feel like that's a lot of volts. I feel like you get a little bit more from other sources. Like if you... Chris, I'm I'm not going to pretend like I know. Okay. But I know that if you get a lot of amperage, it can go through your body very quickly and kill you. So, well, it killed the shit out of this guy. So mission accomplished. Yeah. Hang the banner. Mm-hmm. But really, the point of this... Mm-hmm. President McKinley was gone, but in just five years as president, he had taken the U.S. economy from a decaying domestic wasteland and turned it into a global superpower in which big business dominated politics and corporate need influenced every facet of international policy. And in a hundred plus years, absolutely fuck all has changed. (laughs) End of story. Woo! We did it. We told the story of McKinley and his assassination, his presidency, the expansion of America. Man, that's a lot of stuff to cover, and I think we did it. And we did it well. But there are a few things that still need discussion. And those things we call the fast facts. Fast fact number one. 
Back in 1896, there is speculation that Mark Hanna controlled and guided William McKinley when it came to policies. A big reason for this is the belief that McKinley owed Hanna after Hanna got his wealthy political friends to bail McKinley out of over $100,000 in debt. Fast Fact Number 2 Strangely, one of the men who opposed the annexation of the Philippines was billionaire steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, who joined forces with Grover Cleveland and Mark Twain to denounce McKinley's imperialism. Carnegie wrote the president several letters to discourage him and signed each one, Your Bitterest Opponent. Around the same time he joined the labor movement, Leon Cholgosh became frustrated with the Catholic church he had grown up in. The priest told him to pray for work and money, and when that didn't ever work out for him, Leon blamed the church and called them phonies. Instead of seeking religion for guidance, Leon turned to the tried and true science of astrology so he could forecast his lucky days based on his sign. Fast Fact Number 4 Following Cholgosh's arrest, Emma Goldman was also arrested based solely on Cholgosh's love for her. Now, there was nothing to tie her to the assassination, so of course she was released. But, rather than distance herself from Leon like the other anarchists, Emma Goldman lionized him as a hero who died for his beliefs. Fast Fact Number Bonus? Hmm. In 1896, a gold prospector in Alaska named the tallest mountain in North America after the then-presidential candidate William McKinley. Turns out the mountain was already named Denali and had been called that for fucking centuries. Still, it took until 1975 for the state of Alaska to rename the mountain Denali, and 40 years later, the U.S. government recognized the official name when President Obama changed it back to Denali in an act that Republicans labeled as quote-unquote constitutional overreach. All right, well, that does it for this episode on the McKinley presidency and assassination. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We thank you for listening. Next time, we will be diving into World War II. We did World War I in 2021. We're looking at some World War II stuff in 2022 so get excited for that in the meantime check us out at hundredproofhistory.com there you find a little bit of biographical information some links to old episodes and most importantly a link to our patreon or for just three dollars a month you get early access to new episodes and a whole bunch of old stuff these regular humans don't get to hear with that guys i thank you for listening for Dan Dan, the intro man, for Wolf Dick, our esteemed producer, I say thank you. I am your sexiest of hosts, Chris, main host, glorious, god emperor of hunterproof history, Greg, I ask you, what else? Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Love you. On September 6th, it's when Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>
And now I'm hungry for Jack in the Box, so. <laughs> yes, this pleases the Jack. <laughs> Do you remember that one time we interviewed him, though? Like, he speaks like a caveman, for the listener that doesn't know. Or caveman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were like, all right, well, thanks for coming on. You know, we'll see you next time. He's like a caveman that was signing off. He was like, oh, Jack, me off. <laughs> that's just for you. That's a lot of setup, man. You got there. That's just for you. Because <laughs> I didn't want you said. You remember we had him on with him, like, y- you're, yes. You're fucking looking like side to side, like the answer is going to come to you. I can't say no, but I can't say. <laughs> Because the country of Poland will come up later. Does it? Is, is it in there? Yes, that's where his fucking assassin's from, you cuck. Oh, shit, I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, the- Les Claypool's a bass player. Huh. Yep. Learning all sorts of things. <laughs> you fucking uneducated it's, cuck. It's been a learning and friendship day. Yay. That's kind. I'm a racist asshole. Yeah, with the breath and the fuck. That's just nasty. She's like, we don't have to kiss damn sex. What are you, a hooker? Yeah, that's what I I said to my wife. That's what I said to my wife. She's like, we should make out in the morning. I'm like, yeah, after you brush your fucking teeth. (laughs) I'm like, we could do the little little, uh, tiny cup of fucking mouthwash on the the goddamn night and spit it back in like you're at the dentist, but no. I'm out yeah. otherwise. Same. That's disgusting. Same. Yes. <laughs> I want the girlfriend experience. I'll pay extra. <laughs>